Welcome to episode 32 of Podcast Payoffs. We're so glad you're with us. My name is Gord Vickman, here as always with my podcast partner, my friend and my mentor, Dan Sullivan. Dan, welcome to 32. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. They really creep up on you fast, <laughs> how we started. You know, I think where it really surprised me was Joe Polish at Genius Network is the my first podcast experience. And I think we're up to, you know, over 100 anyway. 163. 163, yeah. And I said, gee, boy, that's amazing. How Well, it's enjoyable, too. That I mean, that's... You kind of lose count of things that you enjoy doing. That's the key, basically. Mm -hmm. So the new quarterly book is Collaboration Ground Rules, and it's one of the you know seminal concepts of Strategic Coach. And I thought we could take that concept, unpack it a little bit, and then we could chat about what makes for a great podcast team and some of the things that you as a podcaster might not be really thinking about. So if you join us for this episode, you're going to learn all of those things it might be bad news to some of you because you may be with someone who's not quite working, but we're going to spend some time with you today and we're going to let you know what you need in terms of collaboration to make the best podcasts and the best collaborations happen in terms of people that may be with you who should be or should not be. So obviously, Dan, the best thing to do as we start this show off would be for you to lay out a little bit of the general ground rules for collaborations. How did you come to this? Because it was something that obviously, like I would suspect that 30 years ago, you didn't have this concept solidified in your mind, but now you do. So where did it come from and where did it start? And how did you kind of push that evolution through to where it is right now? Well, I won't use the word collaboration here. I'll use the word teamwork that you either have a feel for teamwork or you don't. And I like, you know, being at the center of attention. I like being in the spotlight, but I prefer doing it where I have teamwork, where I have a collaborator, you know, where you're going back and forth. And with one exception, and maybe not even with this one exception, all my podcasts, which the exact number, I don't know, because we've had interruptions, but I think we've got maybe eight, nine series. With one exception, all my podcast series are with a partner, you know, with someone I go back and forth with. It's not a monologue for me. Podcasting is not you talking at an audience. It's a topic that is mutually agreeable to two partners, and then you go back and forth with it. You go back and forth with it. I've gone to the Second City. I've done their improv training, which is very good. Second City started in Chicago, but the theater company and comedy company in Toronto has produced as much talent as the Chicago theater did. And they offered improv training if you want to go in and how people who do improv, stand-up improv comedy. And Improv comedy always requires you doing it with someone else or you're doing it with the audience. Some people are really great at making the audience their partner, but you're going back and forth. And there's just two rules in improv, which really explains improv and people who are good at it can really use these two rules, but it also spills over into teamwork and it spills over into great collaboration. 
And that is you never block or say no to anything that your partner does. If your partner critical, yeah. If a partner brings up a topic, you go with the topic. You do not say, well, I don't know if I want to talk about that. You know, can't you bring up something more interesting? You know, you want to do that, but I want to do that. It just doesn't look good. It just doesn't sound good. And the other thing is that in order to go with your partner, you always help your partner out. So wherever your partner goes, you say, yeah, and that what you just said really, really opens the door here to another thing. And then the other partner says, yeah, and once you're through the door, you know, this is what you see. So you just keep taking what the person has done and you take it further. And both of you have to be alert to what the other person is saying. And right away when podcasting started, I said, you're dead in the water if it's just you talking. I'm a big fan of Scott Adams. You know, I probably have watched Scott Adams a couple hundred times, but the other one is Joe Rogan, and I watch Joe Rogan all the time. And Scott Adams is really interesting for some of his insights in that, but I much more enjoy the interplay that Joe Rogan has because he has a new guest almost every day, and they go back and forth, and you can just see the teamwork. And a lot of his people are professional comedians. He was a professional stand-up comedian. But, I mean, Joe Rogan is the star. I mean, he is the 800-pound gorilla in the podcast world. But he's remarkably collaborative if you watch how he interacts with all sorts of different people. You know, if you can turn off the hysteria for a moment and you actually listen to Rogan and even Scott Adams. I'm a huge fan of Scott Adams. I think he's amazing. I love Rogan. I've loved him. I remember watching his very first podcast, which was the clumsiest, weirdest creepiest YouTube thing I've ever seen. But he persevered and he went through and he got it. But like I said, if you can turn off the hysteria for a minute, and yeah, he has had some controversial guests on his show. He's had, you know, Alex Jones. He's had Gavin McInnes. He's had people on the right that, you know, maybe had some weird opinions or whatever. He's a very thoughtful person. You'll never hear Rogan piling on any one side or the other. He's very tempered in his approach in terms of what he's talking about and what he's accepting. And he will call people out. If someone says something stupid on his show, he will actually say, well, that's not what we're jiving with here. And I just think people listen to him with one ear and the other ear has got a bean in it or something. But he's actually very tempered with the way he approaches things and his collaborations as well. And I just, it bums me out sometimes because I figure like, why don't you listen to what he's actually saying and mm-hmm. listen to the chances that he's giving people? Because he has people on the right. He's got people on the left. He's got people in the middle. And he's doing all these, you know, fairly insightful interviews. But they hear one thing and then they're like, well, Rogan is this and he's that. So I don't think the people who are criticizing him right now for whatever little tiny like, you know, support we can give Joe Rogan on our little podcast right here. I don't think people listen to him very closely. And I don't think people in general listen very closely to what people are saying right now. It's just like they hear one thing and then they're like, well, that's terrible. And then out come the wolves, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm substantially older than Joe Rogan. So I can remember, you know, that conversation when I was growing up in my teens and 20s was pretty rough and tumble. So you know, I think that we, we have a very fragile part of society right now, you know, that 
everything can upset them, everything can make them uncomfortable. But, you know, it's kind of give and take. You know, I was in the Army. I've been in sports, and I'm pretty used to locker room barracks and locker room conversation and how people talk to each other. You know, I was drafted right at the beginning of the Vietnam War. How did that happen? Can you just unpack that for a sec? How did you get drafted? They send you a letter or because I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a lot younger a little bit here. So what does a draft look like? Yeah, you had to register for the draft at 18, you know, and it was illegal not to register for the draft. It was required. It didn't mean you were going to get drafted. It just means if they did have a draft, this is the war started officially in 1965, April. It was declared that we were having a war and that they were going to start drafting. And what they did is 25 years old was the cutoff point going up. And they started with the 25-year-olds and went down, and I was 21. So I got called up pretty early. Were you scared? You know, I grew up with stories of the Second World War. You know, I when I was a child, people in our neighborhood, I grew up in farm country, blue-collar, you know, I'm blue-collar country. And, you know, Everybody served, you know, one way or another. They did something. My father worked in a war factory during the Second World War because he had four children already, and that was uh, an exemption. You didn't draft people who had big families like that. And he went through, but he had two brothers that were in the Army, and then we had other people that we knew who were Army, Air Force, Marine Corps. I met people who were in the Marine Corps. So, you know, I mean... The attitude towards military was very, very different after the Second World War. Vietnam really soured the whole narrative about war and that. But I can't recall how I felt about it. I had three brothers who had been in the military. I was the first one who was drafted. They were volunteers to Air Force and Army. And I don't think I gave it much of a thought. And I sure made the best of it. I mean, I had a great Army career. I it's a really big, messy, kind of disorganized bureaucracy. And you can get almost anything you want if you put your mind to it. One thing I learned that if you volunteer, you got favored if you volunteered for stuff. And I volunteered like mad. I'm, I'm a born volunteer. You know, I just have a volunteering kind of attitude. But I ended up, I won't go into it on this podcast, but I ended up with an amazing Army career. I was almost sad when I was discharged after two years. You know, I ended up in South Korea, and, but it was great. I just had a really good time. But the aspect that I was saying is that when I was drafted in two first levels, basic training, and then you have a, what's called AIT, advanced, advanced something training, advanced skill training or something, and I went to is that, you know, we had a lot of good old boys from the South, whites, and we had a lot of big city African-Americans and blacks. You know, I mean, every once in a while, two people have to go outside and settle out there and everything like that. But I was pretty used to it. What a different time. What a strange, strange, different time it was, you know? Yeah. People weren't so bothered, you know, by words. They weren't so bothered by attitudes and everything, but, you know, I think all times are probably different. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is, it is, but you know, when Joe Rogan's the youngster 
don't know how old he is. What would you say Joe Rogan is? I think if I had to guess, I'm going to pull this out of my rear end. I'll say Joe Rogan is 56. Yeah. That's what I'm going to guess. I could be his father. I could easily be his father, and nobody would bat an eyelash. I'd be old enough to be his father. But the big thing is that he's smart, and he's entrepreneurial. Whatever his critics say about him, he's got 11 million listeners, and they don't. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> he is the biggest media personality in the world right now. Oh, yeah. And good on him for doing that. A guy who was like a middling kind of sitcom nerd who started calling fights for mixed martial arts became the biggest media personality in the world. So I respect him. And, you know, I like his show and I think he does great work. You know, I mean, there's a uh, different personality, but there's kind of a resonance between Joe Rogan and Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not considered a particularly outstanding person. And then then he had the best reality TV show in the history of reality TV, <laughs> you know, and did it simply because it was just his runway for running for the presidency. My feeling is that he did The Apprentice as preparation for just getting his name out there. Everybody knew who he was. And then he ran for president and he, you know, surprised the country. And I suspect he's going to get elected president again. He told Oprah in the 80s he was going to do it. And then he did it and he won. Well, she asked him. I don't know if he said it to her, but I remember the video. And I think Oprah is very, very media savvy. She's just one of the most media savvy people. And I think she just picked up that this guy could run for president. And this was 87, I think 1987, the show that I saw. And he said, well, you know, it's a dirty business and you got to give it a lot of thought and everything. But he didn't say no. He didn't say no. And my sense is that he had already made the decision before he actually ran. I think he probably had thought about it for 30 years and was getting ready for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was at the Clintons wedding and all the pictures you see, like Trump with the Clintons at their wedding. You, people are like, what's going on here? It's like, well, he was pals with all these people before he became mortal enemies. He was there. Well, he's a New York developer. He's probably, you know, registered Democrat, of course. He was. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be a very successful big project real estate developer in New York City if you weren't tied in with the Democratic Party. People are so... Short-sighted. They're so perfectionistic. People are just so perfectionistic, you know. Well, he said this, and this contradicts the other hundred things he said. And I said, oh, geez, you know. But getting back to collaboration, I just love working with partners. One of the reasons I like doing it is that I like being surprised. I like being surprised by what someone else says. And the reason is I'm surprised by what I say. <laughs> I like getting in a conversation because then I get two surprises. There's there's what you say, and I'm kind of surprised by that. Then my response is kind of surprising to me. So I'm not a rehearsed type of guy. You know, I, I just like flowing. It's kind of like a good tennis match or a good ping pong match. But you want your partner to be really successful. You want your partner to be a really good, successful partner, a really good creative partner. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think. And I think that people who just do sort of monologue broadcasts on podcasts are missing the boat about what it's really about. Yeah, me too. And I think, you know, one of the things that is in the book, 
collaboration ground rules that I thought was really critical and important. And by the way, you can get your copy of the book. Go to strategiccoach.com. Click store, and it's out right now. It's the brand new quarterly book. This is book number 29 in a series of 100. I do a new one every quarter. Yeah, you do. It's my 30th quarter, and I'm just wrapping up number 30. So. The hero target. I thought it was a fantastic concept that we could you know, spend some time on because when I think about the morning radio world, and that's where I come from is radio, and I had a very uh, successful and long career in radio. And the hero concept was everyone has to zone in very specifically, spearhead on the person you're speaking to. So I was on a rock station, then I was on a hot AC station, and we actually had avatars of the person we're speaking to. So on the hot AC where I kind of like stirred the porridge, basically, we had an avatar of a woman. We had a name for her. Her name was Kathy. And we had a picture of her. And you can do this too if you're podcasting. Think about the person you're trying to reach Find a photograph of that person. This sounds crazy, but it works. Put a photo of that person, successful, talented, ambitious entrepreneur, whether you're going to put Joe Polish up there, put Dan Sullivan up there, put Peter Diamandis up there, put Dean Jackson up there, whoever you want to put, but put a photo of that person and you're actually speaking to that person because the whole concept of the hero target, and it's interesting because you're actually targeting that person who you want to be a hero to. I find that after I read the book, the hero concept was the thing that really popped out to me as could be the most critical element in that book is like, who do you want to be a hero to in that terms of that collaboration? Well, it has to do with the fact that the most advanced level in strategic coach is where entrepreneurs are taking their entrepreneurial company and they're actually creating a collaboration with another usually entrepreneurial company, it could be another type of organization, but you're putting two capabilities together. And the whole point is that you're not really doing it for money in the first instance. So there's, if you can't do it because there's no money in it short term, it's not a good collaboration. Both sides have to be independently successful, okay? But what they want to do is see if they can create something even bigger by putting two capabilities together. And neither of them could bring that capability inside of their organization. It's such a powerful collaboration that it would have to be, you know, out. And you can't hire that collaboration. You can put the collaboration together. But what really holds the collaboration together is that you both want to create value for the same target consumer, target audience out there. And so, for example, I have a collaboration. It's a four-way collaboration. It's Strategic Coach, and it's a writer by the name of Ben Hardy, and it's a book strategist and packager by the name of Tucker Max, and there's a publisher by the name of A House, very, very well-known U.S. publisher. And what holds it together is that all four parts of the collaboration, it's strategic coach ideas, okay? So the books are strategic coach ideas that have been in small form, and now we're going to big form. And it's a absolutely first-class major market book writer, Tucker Max. He was in previous stages of his career. He was the number one blogger in the world on Medium. I'm a fairly decent copywriter, 
he operates in a totally different realm for me. And then Tucker Max is one of the smartest book strategists, book positioner, you know, packager, negotiator, probably in the United States. And Jordan Peterson is well known worldwide now, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson just signed up with Tucker Max. And, really? Yeah. And I did uh, not know that. Yeah. He's on Scribe. Yeah. Wow. You know, and then Reed Tracy, who is the president and owner of A House, just absolutely a great entrepreneur. So all four of us have a love affair with entrepreneurial readers. And that's what holds the whole thing together, that we all want to create value for that. So you can take two great capabilities, but just putting the capabilities together won't create the collaboration. If each of them doesn't have a commitment that's beyond themselves, and it's the same commitment to the same end users. Whenever people talk, we're getting together, you know, entrepreneurs will come to me, they ask me for advice, and they say, you know, we've got these two capabilities and we put them together, we're going to create magic. And I said, yeah, but who are you going to create magic for? And they're not in agreement with each other. And I said, don't even start. Don't even start. You know, just end up being enemies. Terrific in their old worlds. And they came and said, we're going to just form a partnership because, you know, he's talented and I'm talented and everything else. And they ended up in lawsuits with each other. Unfortunately for one of them, the other one was a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great segue. And I think we'll sort of reach the crescendo of the episode here, pull out the landing gear. I'll peel back the curtain a little bit in terms of what makes a great radio show because it parlays very well into podcasting. And some of this language is a little bit, you know, unpleasant, but the way that they structure morning radio, and you can use this too for your podcast, why do you think there's always three people on a morning radio show? Because they have a system, and it's called the dick, the doe, and the deer. <laughs> the dick, the doe, and the deer. And if you're a fan of radio and you listen to morning radio and you think about the shows that you enjoy the most, this is a formula that has been going on for decades right now. There's always a dick. There's always a guy who's a bit of an asshole on the show. There's the doe who makes peace, and then there's the deer who's kind of the punching bag. And that's the way that they structure morning radio shows. So if you don't have three people on your podcast, the crux of what I'm saying right now is there needs to be a contrarian. There needs to be someone who shows the other side of what's going on and explains that. And I think one of the reasons why our show thrived, the show that we were on was called D-Mindy and Gord. It was wildly successful in London. We never made it to Toronto because people went in their own different directions and things happened. We had the dick, the doe, and the deer. But I had this idea. I thought, well, what if we play with that a little bit? Because my role on the show was to be the dick, basically. (laughs) I thought, what if we trade off a little bit? What if you play the dick a little bit? What if I play the doe? (laughs) We traded off these roles. And you would think that would be counterintuitive because when you think about a sitcom like Seinfeld, you know what Kramer's going to say. You know what Jerry's going to say. You know what Elaine is always going to say. And I reference Seinfeld because, you know, like, arguably the greatest sitcom in history. But we traded roles a little bit and we confused people. And it was interesting because people didn't really know what to expect, but they knew us as characters individually in the first place. So we kind of bounced that off each other and that's how we played it. And it worked incredibly well. And it was a huge gamble. It was a huge risk, but it worked. Mm -hmm. So if you have a podcast and you're thinking about collaboration 
if you have someone with you who agrees with everything you say and just parrots everything you're saying, it's not going to be very interesting. So find that contrarian who's going to push you a little bit. And that's, in my mind, in terms of broadcasting, to me, that's a great collaboration. Is someone who's going to push you a little bit, maybe not agree with everything you're saying, but at least you're, again, the hero concept, you go back to that. You're trying to be a hero to the same person, get your avatar of that person, but find that person who's going to push you a little bit and, you know, not agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah, to be a contrarian here. <laughs> Excellent. That's why our podcast works. I'm wondering if there isn't a difference between broadcasting and target casting, which I think we're doing. I can tell you exactly who would be a hero target for me. It's a 20-year strategic coach client by the name of Sasha Kersmer. And Sasha is in the city of Toronto. He knows what the future of virtually all the commercial, residential, and retail industry looks probably more than any other person in the city of Toronto. He's probably got a 10-year, 15-year view of how Toronto is going to develop and which buildings and which projects are going to go up first. He's the number one site surveyor, private site surveyor, his company is in the city of Toronto. We talk about podcasts and we meet socially, and he keeps track of my podcasts. He lists all my podcasts. So when I'm talking on the different podcasts, I always have Sasha in mind that Sasha will find this interesting. He's a very thoughtful person. He's a very deep thinking person. So I want to give him food for thought. You know, that's what I do. You know, somebody who wants to have a fight with me is going to have a really hard time because, you know, I'll take their punch and I'll say, this is a really interesting punch. Let's talk about where punches come from, you know, and, and everything like, let's look up punch on Wikipedia. Where does punch come from? Oh, there was a comedy magazine in Great Britain called Punch. Remember Punch? It was where all the cartoons were and the comedic stories, you know. So somebody who tries to fight me is really going to have a hard time. I'm not a good target for a fight. You're a terrible target. Steadfast in your values, steadfast in the collaboration mindset. Yeah. Successful, talented, ambitious entrepreneurs. That's who we target here. I'm a fifth child in a family. You know, all the older siblings take care of all the fighting. You know, <laughs> I mean, you just look where all the opportunities are because your older siblings are using up all the the attention. I, you just get all sorts of opportunities. So I'm not of that mind. And I've been on shows where people are combative like that. And I find that the message that we're trying to deliver doesn't really come through. Doesn't really resonate. I think broadcasting has a hard time. You've got to, you know yourself, you're not in radio anymore. And there's a good reason why you're not. Mm -hmm. Because it's died. It's died. You know, yeah, it has. I looked on the horizon and, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for all those people who do what they do because I know what they're going through and I understand the plight. I made a really good choice. Yeah. The best choice of my life was to get into the digital space and leave the analog space. <laughs> you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll think back and think, wow, that was a really good idea. Yeah. Gord, you really nailed it there. <laughs> well, my sense is that we're still in the early stages of what you can do with podcasting. Agreed. There's so much happening right now. It's crazy. In terms of history, you know, podcasting is probably where radio was in the 1940s. You know, radio starting in the 1920s. So my 
my sense is we're in the early stages right now. And the other thing is that you're not competing with anybody else. You have your target audience and other people have their target audience and you have unlimited bandwidth and you don't have any sponsors. I don't try to sell anything really on podcasts except ideas. I think this is a good idea. This is a good idea to think about, you know. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. 100%. Let me contradict you there by selling something. <laughs> the book Collaboration Ground Rules is available for you. It's not to... really selling. This is just <laughs> making an opportunity available. This is for personal enhancement. It's not selling. Indeed. I might be biased, but it's a fantastic book. I read it twice yesterday through really quick read. You can read it on the plane from Toronto to Chicago. It's like maybe an hour and a half if you read fast. And strategiccoach.com, click store, and you can get your copy of Collaboration Ground Rules. You walk through the jetway, start reading, get on the other jetway at the other end. Even at the You're gate, yeah. The gate. You can pick it up at the gate too. Plenty of great stuff there. Dan, it's been a pleasure as always, and I look forward to the next one. Thanks so much for your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, share it with two friends, share it with three friends. And if they can get value out of it, you can be a hero to someone today by sharing this episode with them. And we truly appreciate your time today. Podcasts are free, but they're not because you're paying us with your time. And we do appreciate your time. On to the next, Dan. Thanks very much. Thanks, Gordon.